God's an amazing provider. And I think uh, some people that realized that were the Israelites in some of their time in the wilderness. You know, we get to a point in the story uh, after the Exodus that the, the Israelites, they have just experienced the glory of the Lord in so many ways. They've watched as God has defeated Pharaoh and all of the gods of Egypt, and they've watched as God has joined together with Moses, and they've crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They've witnessed God's faithfulness when He brought them into the desert, and then He provided water for them to drink, first at wells and then out of a rock of all places. But now… Here we are a month later after the Passover and after the crossing of the Red Sea, and they begin to notice that they're a little bit leaner than they were when they left Egypt, and they notice that their tummies are growling just a little bit more than they're used to, and they start to grumble. They grumble to Moses and Aaron saying that we don't have enough food to eat. So even though Egypt was slavery and it was hard work, at least they were well fed and provided for. So in their grumbling, they tell Aaron that they need food and that Egypt was better than this place that you brought us to. And of course, you and I, we have perspective on the entire story, and so we think to ourselves that it's a little bit irrational how they're reacting to these things. But I think there's something about physical hunger that begins to short-circuit the rational mind, isn't there? It reminds me of those Snickers commercials. You see these? You're not you when you're hungry. You've seen those, right? It was about 10 years ago when they start, first started to come out but one of my favorites is four guys, they're all sitting in a car, and then one of them all of a sudden turns into Aretha Franklin, the famous singer-songwriters from the 60s and 70s, and she starts complaining about a number of different things. One of his friends hands Aretha Franklin a Snickers bar and says, here, eat this. She takes a bite, and all of a sudden, she turns back to normal. And then another guy says, you know, you're kind of a diva when you're hungry. And then the slogan, you're not you when you're hungry, comes on to the thing, right? The Snickers commercials. And I think that there's some reality to this. I think that there is. Abraham Maslow, albeit a, a humanistic psychologist, proposed a framework that many of us are familiar with. You're familiar with this hierarchy of needs, maybe from high school uh, psychology class or something like that. The basic assumption, if you're not familiar with this, is, is that until our basic needs are met, we won't consider the next level of need as we progress up the pyramid. For example, if you don't have food, clothing, and shelter, you're not going to uh, strive for love and affection until those basic needs are met. And you won't seek an identity in spiritual things until you are experiencing intimate relationships with others that are around you. And I think, I think from a completely secular and fleshly perspective, I think Maslow's right. But here's the issue. I want to be more than my fleshly self. And I think God wants us to be more than just our physical desires. So... Israelites in the wilderness, God is faithful to them even in their grumbling for food, 
even in their hungry, he didn't bring them out. Uh, he didn't bring them out into the wilderness to suffer and to die and to you know become hangry divas themselves. Uh, so he hears their grumbling, and instead of rejecting them for their faithless lack of trust, he provides for them, doesn't he? He provides. He tells Moses to give instruction to the people because they're about to have meat in the evening and then bread in the morning. And in the morning, when they have the bread, they will see the glory of the Lord. Lo and behold, they wake up. And in the morning, there is this fine bread-like material all over the wilderness. It's white, it's sweet like honey, and it develops after the morning dew. And the Israelites begin to question it. They question it with the Hebrew phrase manu, or mana, 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 right? Which when translated means, what is it? Later on, they'll refer to it as manna. It's like they're holding it up and they're saying, it's this whatchamacallit. And so Moses explains to them that this is a gift from God. It is bread that has come down from heaven. And for the next 40 years until they enter into the promised land, they will eat this providence of God on a daily basis. And it's life-sustaining for them. There's a lot of fascinating and teachable moments for the Israelites during this time and, and the account of God's faithfulness as He provides for them. But I want to point out three to us this morning. First lesson I want to point our minds to is, is what I think is the most obvious lesson is that God provided for the Israelites' physical needs. God was generous in His provision, was He not? He had pulled them out of slavery. Uh, we don't get any indication from the text that they were in any immediate physical danger from their hunger. And he could have just said, you'll be fine, tough it up, suck it up, maybe a little bit, right? But he was generous, and he gave them what they needed. And here's the thing, he gave them what they needed from their perspective. Of course, this wasn't the only time that God came through for them in their basic needs, is it? He gave them water from a rock and from wells. He made sure that their clothes and their shoes didn't wear out. He helped them to fight their battles. But here's the thing, is it was all for a purpose. It was all for their understanding of things. Yes, it was to provide for their physical needs, but Moses reminds the people in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that the point behind all of this physical provision that God had given to them was that they recognized that there is no one including themselves, who had the ability to provide everything that they need. He'll say it in this way in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says that man doesn't live by bread alone. Instead, he lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Oh, and also, Israel, when you get into this land that God has promised you and you're provided all of these good things and you establish wealth, don't say to yourself, look at all the things that I have done. No, remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to achieve these things. You have no ability within yourself. Certainly no God in Egypt could do this for you, so don't put your faith in anyone or anything other than the provider of these things. In other words... Israelite, 
Don't, uh, don't rely on the things and your ability to get those things. Instead, rely on the giver, the creator himself. And if you can remember, if you can remember that you're not in control and dedicate yourself to the provider and his purposes, all of these things will be provided for you. Jesus will say it in this way to us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, they'll be added to you. This leads to the second lesson for them in the wilderness. One of the most important parts of this narrative for the Israelites is that God taught them to rely on, on him in incredibly beautiful and intimate ways. He's about to take them to Sinai and establish a marriage covenant with them. And through the prophet Jeremiah, God remembers the wilderness time as though it is his honeymoon with these special people that he drew out of Egypt. In Jeremiah chapter 2, starting in verse 2, God says, I remember, Israelites, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to Yahweh the first fruits of his harvest. And no matter what your views on marriage roles are in the 21st century, when a marriage happens, there is this reliance that is shared as we learn to lean on our spouse in ways that we never thought that we needed another person to provide for us. For Israel, yes, their physical needs were provided for, but the truest need of authentic and abiding relationship with God was being established in those moments. But developing this relationship was a journey. It was a process, wasn't it? Because it's the simplest thing for God to perform a bunch of miracles and draw them out of slavery in Egypt, but it's a whole different activity. It's a whole different activity to remove generations of slavery and worship of the Egyptian gods from the hearts of the Israelites. God desired an intimate and a monogamous relationship with his people, like he designed for all humanity in the beginning. But hardened hearts and grumbling, and divided loyalties would prevent the Israelites from living up to their part of the marriage covenant a time and time again. It's at this moment that I have to pause and wonder myself, am I living in faithful ways to God's providence and provision for me in my own life? Lesson three, we find God went to great lengths to provide for his people. We hear in Exodus 16, 13, that this was bread that descended from heaven. Another way to say that is something from God's space was now in man's space. There's this description that we get of manna. It was white. It was sweet like honey. And then later on in Numbers, it also has the appearance of this weird word, delium. It's either a stone or a resin. We're not exactly sure what it is, but it's only ever mentioned in one other place in Scripture, and that's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 12, in the garden of God, when he's walking in perfection with the humans. It's as though God is making a statement. When you put your trust in me for your survival, Israelites, we're returning to the way that it should be. We're returning to the way that it should be when you put your trust in me. Of course, when heaven comes to earth, 
It's a holy occurrence, isn't it? And should be remembered as such. After all, where God is present is holy, like Eden was holy, like the burning bush and the ground surrounding it was holy, like Mount Sinai was holy. So some of this bread that came from the sky, God's space, heaven, is stored for the generations to remember. It's placed in the ultimate heaven and earth overlap inside of the tabernacle's holy, holy place. And I think that this makes good sense. I think it makes good sense. It's fully appropriate, right, that this generous act of God's holiness miraculously invading the space of humans should be closely associated with the presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant, which is His localized holy presence. After this gift of the manna and all that it meant to God's people, what do you think their disposition should have been? What, how do you think that they should have responded? If you were an Israelite, how would you have felt after all of this happened? You were hungry, God provided for you, and He established this intimate relationship with you while bringing heaven to earth. And I can imagine, initially anyway, that all were filled with extreme gratitude for how God had come through. They were bonded to the Almighty God of all creation and thankfulness and provision. I can relate to that sentiment. I don't know if you can. I can relate to that sentiment. When God shows up in ways that only He can, when, when a sickness of somebody that I love is healed, or even my own sickness is healed, when prayers are answered, when there's an impossible crisis that's resolved, when there's no way out other than an intervention by God and the problem is simply gone, I'm left with just simple and, and deep abiding gratitude for the one who brought me through the chaos. Of course, that's not always the way that the Israelites responded to God, is it? Here's what I want us to hold on to in our mind about this manna narrative. Three things. God provided for their needs. That's number one. Number two is that God desired an intimate and trusting relationship with them. And number three is that He literally brought heaven down to earth in the bread that He gave to them. Here's the issue, though. The manna that He gave them was a temporary fix to an eternal problem. Even though they ate this heaven bread... Each one of those that was out there, they died. They died. But it's important to keep these lessons in mind because this is a reminder of things that are going to happen. Excuse me. So many other parts, like so many other parts of the Exodus, Sinai, and Wilderness narrative, the manna is foreshadowing a person and an event that was designed for you and me today. Beneath all of the events and the lessons, there is someone who has been hidden in plain sight in this narrative. It is the person of Jesus Christ himself. And so I want us to turn our minds now, kind of do a shift of focus, right? Turn our minds to the New Testament. If you've got a Bible with you, you might want to open up to John chapter 6. That's where we'll be. We get this account in John chapter 6 that's very reminiscent for good reason of the giving of the manna in the wilderness. Jesus, who is preaching and performing miracles, has large crowds that are following him, and they're hungry, right? They're hungry. Does that sound familiar? They're hungry. And long story short, Jesus provides them with a meal of bread and meat. 
5,000 men, probably 15,000 plus people that he provides this meal for. It's miraculous. And just like the man in the wilderness, something special has happened for these people, and they're fascinated, and they're bonded to Jesus in a new way, and they want to be around him more, so they follow him. But just like the Israelites struggled with their own pure motives, so did many of Jesus' followers as well. He calls them out on this when he says to them in John 6, 26, and, and I paraphrase here, you're following me because your stomach is full and you want more physical food. Seek instead the spiritual food of God. Seek instead the spiritual food of God. He's asking them in these moments to take a deeper step than their, than their basic physical needs of the flesh. He's asking them, like the, like the Israelites before, to be more dedicated to God than their physical hunger. He's asking them to break free from Maslow's needs pyramid and feast on something that will feed every part of their being. He's asking them to overcome that temptation to become hangry and lose sight of what's really important when their physical being isn't satisfied from their perspective. Of course, because of their own experiences, they can't get past what they know, and they demand a sign, a sign like Moses gave the Israelites in the wilderness of bread. And just for a moment, just stop here. If you're caught up on, on the whole bread thing, right, get past your modern concept of carbohydrates and gluten, right? The bread that he's talking about here is it's synonymous with, with good and nutritious food, right? I want to pick up the text in John chapter 6, starting in verse 32. Listen to how Jesus responds to them after they ask for this sign. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the, bread that, uh, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, and he gives life to the world. In other words, it wasn't Moses who made heaven and earth collide. It was God who sustains all of the world, and he wants to give all of the world life. Verse 34, they question him, and they say, Sir, give us this bread. You see, they don't understand yet that he's talking about not just physical food for their existence. It's about relationship. It's about life. It's about God giving them what they truly need, even beyond their perspective. But their ears are tuned to hear only what they desire to hear, and it's, that's about their physical needs. It's at this point that Jesus drops the bomb on the conversation. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will but to do the will of the one who sent me. And in a single moment, Jesus has stated that the story about the manna in the wilderness, it was about him. It was about him, and the story was pointing to deeper truth than just a full stomach for a singular moment in time. 
He continues, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And if you've ever studied this part of John and you've ever struggled with what Jesus is talking about when he says, eat of the true bread, eat of me later on in the the chapter, he's about to describe it to you. So listen closely. Here in verse 40, he says, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. That's what it means to eat of the true bread. He says, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus wants us to know through this miracle and through his teachings, the exact same lessons that God was trying to teach the Israelites. Here's the first one, mirrored lessons. God sent heaven to earth in the person of Jesus You see, just like the manna, heaven and earth met in the person of Jesus. Jesus was the holiness of God that came down from heaven. Paul will talk about this uh, explicitly in in, in Ephesians 4. But this is the concept that we commonly call the incarnation of God, which is encapsulated perfectly for our our purposes this morning in John 1.14, when John writes, and the Word, who is Jesus, he became flesh and he dwelt He set up the tabernacle, is what that's implying. He set up the tabernacle among us. It's as though Jesus is this mobile tabernacle temple of God's presence, spreading God's space into man's space throughout his ministry. Oh, and that secret manna that was stored away for the generations and the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, it's found in the person of Jesus. And you and I, We get to partake of it in him when we put our trust in him being the true provider of our very existence. Now, through him, we have all of our needs met as well, which leads us to our second lesson, our deepest need. And our deepest need is that of a reconciled, intimate relationship with the master and the creator of this universe. And that is found as well in the person of Jesus. Just like the Israelites were unable to feed themselves in the wilderness, we are powerless. We're powerless to provide our own deepest needs of a complete and a deep relationship with our God. But we find that in the person of Jesus. And when we eat of the true bread of life from the true manna from heaven, we begin to realize that all of our needs They could never, they could never be met by me and my own abilities, but only by God himself. It's this intense realization, isn't it, that not only am I unable to save myself from my sinfulness, but in the grand scope of things, everything around me, like literally everything around me, from the breath of my lungs to the clothes that I wear, to my family, to my church family, to everything that is is a blessing, right? Those are all things that are provided by God. I can't provide anything for myself or for others, which leads to a third mirrored lesson. God provides all of our needs in Jesus. God provides all of our needs in Jesus. One of the things that Jesus points to over and over and over again in his ministry is that God provides every single one of your needs in him. Yes, our bodies require physical things to survive, but our souls need much more than just food and clothing and shelter and safety. 
He says in Matthew 6, 25, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Then he tells them to go meditate on birds and flowers because these are little things and God loves them and he provides completely for them and he loves you more than them, so he's going to provide completely for you. What Jesus is saying here in John chapter 6 is rely on me, eat of me, and if you do, your spiritual needs will be met. And if you can prioritize that, catch this, your physical needs will be met as well. In other words, for the Christian, Maslow had it completely upside down. He's saying, go pursue the basic things first, and then you can pursue the higher things. And God says, no, pursue the creator of all of these things, and he'll give you the rest. And I don't know, maybe if it is for you, it has been for me in the past, that this is kind of a hard pill to swallow. It certainly is at least a a leap of faith, right? But when we put our trust in the creator of all gifts and have an intimate and correct relationship with him, we will always have what we need. When you put your trust and faith in the creator of all gifts, you will always have what you need, but not just for this life, for the next as well. Listen, I want to recognize, as Jesus' disciples will later on in this chapter, that this is, it's a hard teaching. It's one thing for Jesus to save us from slavery and sin and death, but just like it was a whole different activity to remove generations of Egyptian slavery and worship of their gods out of the Israelites' hearts, it's a process for us, to relearn how, for us to learn how to fully rely on God and His provision. I do want us to begin to take some steps in that today, though. So I'm going to ask a few simple questions to help this maybe sink into our being a little bit further. What or who are you relying on to satisfy you? What or who are you relying on to satisfy you? Are you relying on a relationship with someone other than Jesus? Are you relying on your job or a sense of significance that you find in something else? Are you relying on your own abilities or your own finances to provide for all of those needs? What or who are you relying on to satisfy you? Get specific when you start asking yourself these questions. Be honest with yourself. Then, what would it mean for you to seek first God, His Son, His kingdom, and then let all of these other things be added to you? What would it mean for you to be spiritually filled by Jesus, the bread of heaven, to be so connected to Him that even all of your physical necessities become secondary to your pursuit of God? What would that mean to you? Listen, we all crave spiritual sustenance. We all crave spiritual sustenance. Even those who reject God, they feel this deep hunger to be filled by something other than the physical things that are in this world because they understand that those things can't satisfy. Jesus says, let that thing that you crave, let it be me. 
Let it be me. Let me be your bread. Let me be your food. And if you do, you'll live forever and have everything that you need between now and when you cross over into eternity. Will you let your spiritual hunger for Jesus, the true bread, become the need that you pursue above everything else? Have you made him your everything? Have you made him your everything? Have you put him on in baptism? Have you called him not just your Savior in that baptism, but have you called him your Lord in that baptism? If you have that need to put him on in baptism this morning, or if you have any other need that we can help you with, we're going to sing a song right now. We want to offer an invitation to you to come while we stand and sing.